Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. Some of you all know we uh, managed to run away for a few days to the beach this past week. Um, so if I look a little brown, as some of you all mentioned, it is just my face and arms. I'm as pink as my shirt in other places, but uh, an office job after so many years will do that to you, amen? Not to mention a little bit of age. I've come to the conclusion that uh, muscle tans and fat sizzles and burns, and so uh, I'll leave that to you to uh, see how that applies and how you found that to be true in your life. But it is good to be back. It is good to be able to get into God's Word together again, to have had some time just to, uh, in the quiet of the mornings, um, just to get into the Word and uh, really just marinate there throughout the day with some of the things that we've been looking at. So you get the full force of it today. I'm, I'm sorry if I go long. It's God's fault. He gave me rest and relaxation and a big sermon. But uh, no, we're, we're going to endeavor to get through chapter 2 today. We started last week in chapter 1 kind of with an introduction to the book. But this idea that Paul is trying to get across to the Philippian church, what true joy is and where that joy comes from, and this idea <clears throat> that joy comes through a right attitude. And we talked about this uh, passage in Proverbs last week about how a man thinks in his heart or he reckons in his soul. He is that. And so we looked at this idea that if we'll get our mind right, if we'll truly understand who we are, what we're called to, how we're supposed to be, and we get our mind wrapped around that, then it's through that that we find joy and that we find contentment in whatever our situation is and whatever our circumstance is. And as we get into chapter 2 today, Paul talks about that joy in humility and finding joy through humility. And this isn't just that superficial type of humility or that humility that we try to feign so that people think better of us, which in and of itself, right, is the complete opposite of what humility even tries to accomplish. But we do that. We, we try to appear humble. We don't want to appear proud. We don't want to appear haughty. So we, we try to put on this face. But Paul says true humility is more than that. It's deeper than that. It comes through the right attitude. And this attitude is an attitude of humility. And so we're going to look at that today as we get into chapter 2. Read with me. We'll begin in verse 1. We're going to take this in chunks and kind of look at what each part of it has to say and put it all together as we go this morning. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy, Paul says, complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul is being very rhetorical as he's trying to focus the Philippians in on this understanding that they are part of the body of Christ. As we left off at the end of chapter 1, he was talking about this idea that they have been gifted and granted with the opportunity to suffer for the calls of Christ. And they're now experiencing in their suffering the same suffering that Paul has experienced about his ministry and his life for the cause of Christ. So he's pointing them back to, here at the beginning of chapter 2, this fact that they are united in Christ. And they can see these things as reassurances that they are. And he says, as part of the body of Christ, we do experience these things. I realize he has that word if in there, but understand he's being very rhetorical in this. He's pointing out to them what they do have as members of the body. And he says, as members of the body of Christ, there is encouragement in Christ. 
Even in the midst of their suffering, they're suffering for Christ. And it's an indication and a reminder of them that Christ is with them. And he's making good on this promise never to leave them, never to forsake them, to be with them even to the end of the age. As they place their faith in him, he is in them and he is not going anywhere. So there is that encouragement that Christ is never leaving them. That he is always there, always indwelling them. And even if they find themselves suffering, they find themselves suffering, as we looked at last week, because they are doing the things that Christ has called them to do. If they weren't doing those things, they wouldn't find themselves in suffering. So as members of the body of Christ, there is that encouragement that's there. There's also this consolation of love. This understanding that Christ not only is with them, but is providing for them and is there with them in the midst of the suffering out of the love that he has for them and the compassion that he has <clears throat> excuse me, has for them. It's the same love that Paul had experienced. Regardless of the situation that he found himself in, continually Christ was there providing for him, getting him through, giving him grace new every day because of his love and his compassion, his desire for this relationship with Paul is the same as he has for this church in Philippi. There's also this fellowship of the Spirit that's there. As believers, they're indwelt by the Spirit, so not only do they enjoy a special personal fellowship and a special relationship with God himself, they enjoy the special camaraderie and the special relationship that only exists between believers, between those who are all indwelt by the Spirit. You know what I'm talking about. You've been places, you've run into people, you've encountered people before in your lives that you don't know from Adam, but within a couple of moments of finding out that they too are a fellow believer, all the walls seem to come down, and there is a fellowship that you can have, and there is a certain type of camaraderie that you have with them simply for the fact that they too are genuine believers. That they are indwelt by the same God that indwells you. And that's the only connection that you really need. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from, what age you are, what background you have. There is that thing that you share in common. And Paul is encouraging the church that as believers, they are assured that they are part of the body. That they are suffering for Christ together because they're experiencing this same type of fellowship in the spirit. He says there's one other thing that they all share. And that's this affection and compassion. This is beyond just that camaraderie that we feel when we get together with other believers. But it's that genuine care and concern that we feel for them because they're believers. Because they're another part of the body. It's that same illustration that Paul uses when he talks about the body of Christ, Christ, where he says one part of the body doesn't suffer, that it doesn't affect other parts of the body. Because we are in the same body, because the suffering of one affects the ability of the other, there is this compassion, there is this affection that happens because we are united together in this one body. And that sense of unity is what he's getting at. And it begins to form this idea of where joy and humility comes from. It comes from this team mindset. Notice as he goes on. He ends the rhetorical response there in reminding them that they're part of this body to just coming straight out. He says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, and focusing on one goal. Humility begins when we realize that we're part of the body of Christ, that we're part of a team, that we have one goal in mind. And as he begins to talk about that mindset, he reminds them of what he said in chapter 1. This one goal is the gospel. It's the glory of God. 
That's, that's what this team is trying to accomplish. If you talk about sports teams, there's always a championship at the end of the year. There's a certain trophy that they're trying to win. There's a pennant that they're trying to get. There's a certain finish line that they're trying to cross. And all of the team's effort is geared toward that. And Paul is telling us, look, we are all part of a team. And our end goal, the thing that we are trying to accomplish, is the furtherance of the gospel and ultimately the glory of God by doing so. We want to see the kingdom spread and expand. And we all play a role in that team. And so here's where humility comes in. It's beginning to understand that every member of that team has a different calling, has a different role, has a different function in the team. But all of those are equally important. A good team realizes that. If you think about any of the great teams throughout the years, or better yet, a great franchise or a great dynasty, there's something that they all have in common. And it's excellence from the top of the organization to the bottom. And a sense of camaraderie in that franchise. It doesn't matter whether it's the owner or someone who's sitting in the front office making decisions with the money or evaluating talent or deciding who the team is going to bring in. People who will never step foot on the field, but people who are great with the numbers. Or it's the assistant to the assistant to the assistant coach of one specific area of the team. He realizes that he's been brought in for a specific job, a specific expertise, a certain role that he's supposed to play that keeps his guys on the field, not just for a game, not just for a season, but the idea is to keep them healthy and keep them growing and keep them stronger for several seasons throughout the course of this dynasty, throughout the course of their career. It doesn't matter who they are or what the function is. They realize that they all have to play their part if this team is going to be what it's supposed to be. And the guys who are on the field recognize that. When you see these great teams and you see these great dynasties, you see the appreciation. And it's not just because the microphone is in front of their face in an interview. and They have to say, well, it all started with the guys up front. I couldn't have done anything without them. No, this is that genuine, heartfelt sentiment that you see from some of these superstars who realize They would not be in the positions that they're in. They would not have the opportunities that they have. They would not be able to do what it is that they do without these other guys who are playing vital roles both on and off the field. Giving you an example, in high school, uh, while I was at South Charleston, we were fortunate there for a few years that the school excelled in several different athletic endeavors and we saw several championships over the course of a few years. And that kind of trickled down through the student body as a whole. And you saw a sense of camaraderie there in the school. It didn't matter whether it was the athletes or the band or the cheerleaders or the tech club or whoever it was. Everybody was kind of getting together and rallying around these different groups. And it began to extend not just in athletics, but we started seeing it with some of the academic teams or some of the different club teams for different things and competitions that they would go through. And just this sense of of winning and accomplishment kept building And built over the course of several years to where it was, you know, just kind of the expected thing. We might not win, but we're going to the championship and we're going to give somebody a run for their money. And what you began to see was support from different groups for these different teams and these different groups. I mean, when was the last time you saw a pep rally for your debate team at your high school, you know? But it was one of these things. It was just 
pulling together and that sense of accomplishment by the whole, not just for the good of this team or that team, but for the name and the reputation of the school. Right? And you saw them coming together. We saw this particularly with the uh, football team and the band one year. The football team was enjoying some success and had enjoyed some success the year before, but were coming into what was my junior year of high school and really felt like you know everything was in place and all the pieces were there together. But at the same time, the band instructor had had some things going on in her life personally and had to take some leave, and it kind of fractured what was going on with the band, and ball was getting dropped here and there, and it was kind of leadership by committee, and you know how that works sometimes. You get people who aren't always gifted at it, but they're willing to do it, and so they step in, and they tried to do some things and help. And one of the things that was really kind of lacking because of the inconsistency in leadership there was funding that had never really been a problem before. So we were getting to the point where we were facing not being able to take buses for the band to away games, and they were just going to play at home games. The football team got wind of it and said, no. They're some of our biggest supporters. We know the difference that they make on the sidelines. Oftentimes, they're some of the loudest people that we have over there and the biggest cheering section that we got. If we're going to the away games, they're going to away games. So they were taking their athletic booster money and renting buses for the band to be able to go. The band never stepped foot out there during the game time. But yet the football team members realized what it was that the band was bringing to their attitude and their mindset during the game. And they felt that was important enough because they were playing their part. And it was the same mindset that Paul is envisioning here. He says that's the beginning of true humility. It does not matter if it's the pastor. It does not matter if it's the janitor. It does not matter if it's a Sunday school teacher or who's somebody who's taking role. Every person in the body of Christ has a job and a responsibility, something that they are to accomplish for the kingdom of Christ. And it's not that the head coach is here and the water boy is here. In the kingdom of God, they're here. The trick is that they're each fulfilling their role. And Paul says that's where humility begins. Remember, this is a church that is set in a society where reputation and titles were key. Remember last week, they had stone markers set up in the center of town that read like resumes of all the accomplishments of the people in town and the different titles that they had been given and the different honors that had been bestowed on them. And Paul is saying it's not about that. It's not about the title that you wear. It's not about what it says on the back of the jersey. It's not about who's interviewed for the paper this week and who's in the you know, box score, who's at the top here and who's at the top there. No, it's about is everyone fulfilling their part and doing what they've been tasked to do for the kingdom. And that is the beginning of humility. Because this entire organization, the body of Christ, has one goal. And that's to see the kingdom of God expand. And as we begin to understand that, and as this begins to be the basis for true humility, then we begin to find joy. Because as the entire organization succeeds, you get to be a partaker of those fruits. As this person in the body of Christ begins to see fruit in their life, it becomes an encouragement to you. But not only does it become an encouragement to you, if the kingdom of God is expanding here, that's a win for the team that you're on. 
that the kingdom of God begins to expand in your life, that's a win for this person because it's a win for the same team that they're on. See, the team doesn't succeed individually. It succeeds as a whole. And where one person on the team succeeds, the whole team is succeeding. And Paul says we can find great joy in that. Notice what he said. He wanted them to be of this mindset, to realize these things, to begin to act this way, to be able to focus, right, on the one goal. Why? He says that you might fulfill my joy. See, those that have invested in the team find joy whenever the team succeeds. Whether they're currently on the team or whether they're alumni, there's still joy that's shared because they have invested in and support the team. It spills over into entire communities. You've seen it happen, especially in high school and youth sports. What happens if Winfield's on the way to the championship? I know it's been a long time, right? But what happens if Winfield's on the way to the championship? When you go through town, what, what is every little you know, mom and pop shop, what do they have on their sign out front? Go Generals, right? There's the elementary school kids, right? Whenever the team's off and they get on the bus and they go to head across the state to the championship game in the middle of the afternoon, as they drive down the main drag through Winfield, what ends up happening? There are the elementary school kids lined up on the sidewalk, right? Cheering away. They don't have a clue what's going on, right? But they're supporting their team. There's this sense of pride, right, that extends throughout the entire community. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, I have invested in you. And I want to see you succeed. I want to see the kingdom of Christ expand. And not for me. Not so that I can say, look, I fathered that church and look what they're doing now. No. But because if that church succeeds, the kingdom of Christ is expanding. And what was Paul's entire life devoted to? The expansion of the kingdom of Christ. He's saying where brothers and sisters in Christ succeed, the body of Christ succeeds. And that is joy. That is joy. And that's what it's to be about. But go on with me as we continue to read. It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Paul's telling them how they begin to develop this team mindset, how they should function as a team, what a good team looks like. So he goes on and tells them, look, you have to have humility in a couple of areas. First and foremost, you have to have uh, humility in material things. You have to look at what you're valuing and the way you begin to value things. Paul was not going to find joy in what the offering was Sunday to Sunday in the church in Philippi. He was not finding joy in what type of gift that they could send him and support him while he was in prison. He was not finding joy in if they were able to you know, refurb the church and do a nice you know, facelift on the outside of the entryway. He was not finding joy in whether or not everyone had the most expensive suits that they could wear to church every Sunday. He wasn't finding joy in the type of cars that were parked in the parking lot as people were driving by. His joy was in spiritual things. His joy was in the advancement of the kingdom. And Paul was encouraging them, look, we have to be humble about material things. 
We as members of the body of Christ cannot look at material possessions and material successes and see them as a marker for true success and growth in the area of spiritual life. When we're looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ, God is not blessing them materially because they're doing well spiritually. He's saying if that's what you're looking at, you're looking at all the wrong markers. And if you're looking at yourself and saying, I must be doing pretty well because God has given me this. We as a church must be doing pretty well because our offerings are up 20%. He's saying you're looking at the wrong markers and the wrong indicators. True humility is looking at what the one goal of the body of Christ is and saying, where am I contributing and how are we doing to seeing that goal accomplished? And then the way the world sees success begins to melt away. And the way we begin to see our interactions with others and how we interact with others completely changes. Because we're no longer viewing each other through these material indicators. We're not not looking at people and checking off the boxes and saying, well, they're doing okay and they're pulling their weight because they just got a new car or they got a raise at church or they are at work and they're or more so in reputation. Well, they're the chair of this committee now where they just took over this Sunday school class or they just got voted in as a deacon or they, he's saying, we're not seeking after these things in vain glory. Remember this church at Philippi, they were all about the titles. And titles were a sign of success. Titles were a sign of importance and dignity and honor. And he's saying true humility begins whenever we realize that these things aren't what matters. Because they do two things. They begin to break down fellowship. And they begin to break down interactions and love and camaraderie within the church. Because we begin to set ourselves in a hierarchy. And who we associate with and who we serve and how we serve and who we serve with and who's able to serve and who's not able to serve. And they also begin to make us feel a little bit too important. As my title expands and and the honors I've been given expand, there are things that start to become beneath me. And that's on a level for someone else to take care of. I'm above that now. And Paul's saying if we're going to experience true humility and really begin to grow as a team to see this goal of the kingdom of God expanding advance, that we've got to get to the point where we realize It's not about the material things. It's not about reputation. We have to look at it through a different set of eyes and see it in a different perspective. Notice what he says. We're not doing it out of selfishness or vainglory, but in humility, we're considering others as more important than ourselves. It's a perspective change. It's a perspective change. This idea of more important is an interesting word. And Paul uses it over in chapter 3 and verse 8 where he talks about viewing everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. That phrase there, surpassing value, and more important than ourselves, it's the same word. And it means to excel or excellence, 
is where we get that idea. But it's talking about to excel. In other words, when we look at other members of the body of Christ, we're to see all of them, all of their positions, excelling over our position. In other words, we're to become the servant of all. We're to become the servant of all. We're to realize that there is nothing that's beneath us. And that there's no one that's beneath us. My job isn't more important than your job. My job is different. My responsibilities aren't heavier than yours. They're different. The fruit that I'm after is the same fruit that you're after. And the way that we get there is the same. There's only one goal. This is that mindset that says it doesn't matter what I have or what my title is. I don't deserve for anyone to wash my feet. It's me who should be looking for someone's feet to wash. What did Jesus try to teach his disciples? If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of God, what must you do? Be the servant of all. And he's saying it's a perspective shift. True humility comes when we change our perspective and begin to view others as excelling our position in life, excelling our position in the body of Christ. As a member of the body of Christ, I should constantly be looking at how, as whatever member I am, whatever part of the body I am, how can I, as that part of the body, make sure that all other parts of the body are able to do what it is that they are supposed to be doing for the kingdom of Christ? I'm to be a servant of all. But humility also has to come in our focus. He says not only do we consider others as more important than ourselves, he says everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now he doesn't say not to look out for your own interest at all. That would go counter to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 where he's talking about this idea that as Christians and as the body of Christ, we should have all of our stuff together, not just individually, but as a body. We should appear to those outside as a cohesive unit who are all headed in the right direction and taking care of each other. That when people look at Christians and they see Christians and people who claim the name of Christ and claim to be following Christ as Lord, they should see people who are not leaving their own behind, who are not leaving their own without food and in want. They shouldn't be leaving their children orphaned. They should be taking care of their own so well that it makes other people wonder what it is that's going on. And then that begins to spill over as they begin to take care of others outside. But he says it starts inside. As people begin to look at the body of Christ, they should see a group of people there who are like a showcase, as he talks about in Ephesians 3.10, for God's glory and what it is that he can do. So he says, everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. You see, it becomes an active thing. It's not just that I wake up in the morning and if I see someone who's in need or if I see something that I can do for someone else, then I'll do it. No, I wake up in the morning and not only has my perspective changed that others are higher than me, but they become my focus. Every person that I encounter throughout the day, every opportunity that I have, every situation that I find myself in, I need to be asking, God, how are you going to use me in this situation to serve this person? 
You've put them here for a reason. You put them in my path for a reason. What is it you are wanting me to do for them? And that becomes true humility. Because we're looking at how we can further their service, their ministry for the kingdom of God. And in doing so, we see the kingdom of God advanced. And that completes our joy. Because we're all in it for the same goal. He goes on and says, Has this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. See, he's giving us now an example of what this humility looks like. And he says, it's this attitude that we see in Christ. It's, it's Christ as our example that we need to be emulating. As we're wondering what it looks like to be humble, how humble we're supposed to be. He said, here's the standard. First of all, Christ showed us an example of humility in emptying himself. himself. That's, that's an interesting way to paint this picture. Because it sounds almost as if Christ gave up something. Or emptied himself of deity, which is not the case. Christ, eternally existent, 100% God, when he came to this earth in the form of man, still 100% God. But what's interesting is this word emptying oftentimes means we're losing something or we're getting rid of something. And look at what Christ did to empty himself. 100% God, he emptied himself by taking on 100% man. That contrast for us, the position that he was in and what God is and what we are and how far apart those two natures are. God is so far above and beyond anything that we can ever even imagine that by taking on humanity, it's as if he emptied himself. But when he talks about emptying himself to come, What he's talking about is this idea there where that word grasp or clutched, depending on your translation there. Think about what Christ left when he came to take on humanity and empty himself. Eternally existent in a perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. Never separated from them. Perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect relationship for all eternity. And from the creation of heaven and the angelic host existing in constant praise of his glory and his majesty and who he is. All of the right, all of the majesty, all of the worship, all of the things that were due him as God And yet he didn't feel any of that was something that was so defining, that was so important, that was so essential to who he was that he had to hold on to it and not let go. Instead, all of that was rightfully his. And yet he left that to come to where we were. Where he was mocked and ridiculed and rejected. Where most people did not believe he was who he claimed to be where most people only wanted something from him and wanted nothing for him. 
That's what he means when he says he emptied himself. Nothing that he had, nothing that was due him, nothing that was his was so important, so mission critical that he couldn't let it go to come and accomplish on our behalf what he was to accomplish. And as we think about that with our humility, what is it about ourselves that we value so much? What is it in our reputation in our nature that we think is so valuable that we can't lay even that down to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish? What is the thing that we pride ourselves so much on and part of who we are that if God calls us to let it go and never pick it up again for His kingdom, we can't let it go. For some of us, it's our job. For some of us, it's the way we provide for our family. For some of us, it is that title that's after our name. For some of us, it's the number of zeros that are on the end of our paycheck. For some of us, it's where we live. For some of us, it's the way we look, the way we dress. For some of us, it's what people think about us. And what would someone think if I did this? What would someone think if I did that? What would someone think if I just gave it all up today and went and did this for Christ? And some of us, we can't let that go. To us, it's something that has to be held on to. It's so key to who we are. It's so defining for our identity that we could never let that go. We could never give that up. And yet, Christ gives us the perfect example about the request of the Father of letting go of everything that was due Him and laying it all aside. And he didn't just lay it all aside, but he came abased for us. He became human. He took on flesh. He became subject to every temptation, to every trial, to every suffering, to every scorn, to every betrayal, to everything that we could ever be subject to for us. He subjected himself to death on a cross for us. Let's read on. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of the Father. See, this is what humility begins to look like. We've talked about the attitude. We've talked about the way we have to fix our mind and reckon in our soul to find this type of humility. But this is what it looks like, obedience. Christ was completely obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. You say, well, He had to be because He was the Son and the Father said. But understand Jesus is God. I know we cannot fully understand the Trinity, but he was every much as bit of God as God the Father and God the Spirit. And yet he humbled himself. He put himself in the position to humble himself in obedience to the plan of the Father to come and be our substitute. And obedience begins to form out of this humility, out of this understanding of who we are and what we're called to do. 
because it's obedience solely to the Father. And it wasn't just obedience on the cross. Notice we're called to be living sacrifices in Romans 12, and Christ modeled that for us. His obedience began not whenever he went to the cross. His obedience began whenever he let go of all of those things that were rightfully his as God and came to this earth. Every breath, every step, every action, every thought, every attitude was an act of obedience to the Father. Everything that he subjected himself to while he walked this earth, everything that he went without because he took on humanity was sacrifice on our part. And we're called to live in obedience the same way as living sacrifices. You see, it's not about me. It's not about me. And that's where humility rests. When I realize it's not about me, it's about serving others. So anything that there is for me to do in service of others might not be comfortable. It might not be what I would desire for myself. But it's my call. And as a living sacrifice, that's my display of humility. And it's for God's glory. It's for God's glory. It's not even for the success of others. And you see, that becomes a hang-up sometimes for us. Sometimes God calls us to serve people that we don't want to serve. God calls us to do things for people that we don't think deserve it. I would be perfectly willing to lay this down, to give this up, to sacrifice in this way for this person or this person or these people. But God, you're asking me to do that for this person. I'll do it for anyone but them. And we have to remind ourselves that in a state of true humility, I'm not doing what I'm doing, and I'm not sacrificing for this person, this person, or this group of people. I'm not even being asked to sacrifice for this person. My sacrifice is for God's glory. Because if he's going to do something for this person and through this person and with this person... It's not for their benefit, it's for His glory. And when I humble myself to the point that I'm willing to sacrifice and serve even this person, I'll see the kingdom advance. That's the end goal. That's the end goal. So he goes on and talks about what this really looks like in our lives. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will, not, or I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Paul says, okay, you get this mindset of humility right. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you're going to live. This is, this is what it's going to be. You've seen the example in Christ. What does that look like for you? He says it's active submission. It's active submission. He says that you're not just to obey because I'm there, and you're not even to obey because it's me. You're obeying God. 
And he says, in doing so, you're working out your own salvation. Notice, it's work. Work out your own salvation. It's God who's working in you to will and to do, but it's you who's working that out. It's not working for salvation. It's not working to maintain salvation. It's Paul saying, you have been made a new creation, a new creature. God has made a change in you. God is changing your mind. He's changing your perspective. And with this understanding of humility and who you are and what the end goal is, every day now, it's work to see this happen in your life. And you're to work out with fear and trembling because you're not working for man. You're working for the Lord. You're seeking this for His benefit and His glory. See His kingdom expand. It's no different than anywhere else where Paul says, whatever it is that we find our hands doing, we're to do it what? For the glory of God. We're to do it 100% because we're not doing it for man. We're doing it for God. That's what working it out. That's what working out this salvation means in our lives. It's active submission. It's taking every thought, every action, every attitude captive to the cause of Christ and to the expansion of his kingdom. We're to work out our salvation. It's an active submission, but it's also positive. A positive attitude and a positive outlook. Notice what he says is they're working this out, and it's God working in them and through them. He tells them in verse 14, do everything, what? Without grumbling and complaining. We're to do it all without grumbling and complaining. If we can keep in mind that we're not too good for what it is that we're doing. We don't have anything to complain about. See, we tend to grumble and we tend to complain about the things that we think we shouldn't have to do. But that begs the question, why shouldn't you have to do it? Who are you that this is not your job to do? When did you arrive to the point where this is something that's beneath you. Christ abased himself completely. And we're called to follow his example. There is nothing beneath us. And if we realize that there's nothing beneath us, the only other thing we would have to complain about is that God is asking us to do something that has no impact for the kingdom. But this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. In the body of Christ, there is no job that's more important than the other. There is no part of the body that's irrelevant. If God has placed this in my life, if God has asked me to do it, if God has tasked me to do this today, it's not beneath me and it's certainly not irrelevant. If it were irrelevant for the expansion of the kingdom, he, had not, he would not have placed it in my life to do if he's given it to me to do, it's because he needs it done. We go back and look at a passage I refer to often where it says, even before we are created, right? He created the good works that we were to do what? For him. If God has assigned it to me, it's important for the kingdom. I might not understand how. I might not ever understand how. I might not see how it impacts anyone else, 
But God says it does. And so in faith, I take that. In faith, I understand that I'm not better than anything that he asked me to do. And if it's not beneath me, and if it is going to have an impact, what do I have to complain about? What do I have to grumble about? But what's interesting is this passage, this section of the passage also takes on a little bit of a social or a group context. As Paul is telling us to work out our salvation, it has a bigger impact. Because as we're working out our salvation individually, it has its effect on the body as a whole. And elsewhere, we get the understanding maybe that uh, Paul's addressing some issues that are going on. Maybe some grumbling, some strife that's beginning here in the church. We don't know what that is exactly. We're not given those details. But it's as if Paul is trying to head those things off. And he's hearing murmurings, and he's hearing of a little bit of strife within the church, and he's reminding them that individually they're to work out their salvation. And that plays out in the church. And as they understand with humility that they're to serve others, they have nothing left to grumble and complain about. And as they're serving with this positive attitude because there's nothing to grumble and complain about, notice what he says. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. As we referenced earlier, Ephesians 3.10 talks about the church there in Ephesus being basically a showcase for God's glory on display. And that's what Paul desires for the church here in Philippi as well. And he says that they're to be pure and blameless, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Individually, we must be humble so that we stay pure. But as every member of the body of Christ is serving in humility then the body of Christ is functioning efficiently and effectively in the way that God intended it to. And as people on the outside are looking at the body of Christ, they're seeing this pure example of what Christ intended it to be. They're seeing his nature and his glory reflected there in that organism that he left behind to carry his banner and to be these lights or stars that he speaks about. This Humility is going to make us odd to the world as they look at us. This humility, this us having our act together as we serve each other and look out for the interest of each other, it's going to make us stand out. But it's going to make us stand out in the same way that stars stand out in the darkest night. They don't just stand out, they're a beacon. And they're a wonder. And they're a curiosity. And they're something that people aspire to and desire and want to understand more about. And Paul says our humility, our serving each other, our functioning together toward that one goal as the body of Christ makes us like stars in the darkest of night. It's odd, but it's intriguing. And it makes people take notice. But he goes on and he says we're to do that and hold firmly the message of life. We're to be persistent. We're not just to live that way as a season. But we're to struggle 
and persist and keep living that way. Humility is not something that you gain and then you have forever. Humility, if we're not careful, becomes a source of pride because we become prideful about how humble we are. That's both individually and as a body. And he says we're to persist in this humility, doing what? Holding firmly the message of life. As we stand in this darkness, amidst this world of crooked and perverse people, we're to stand holding out that light, the gospel, in humility. Not only through what we say and proclaim, but through the way we live and function and exist. And he says we have to continue to do that. And this word, notice he says, hold firmly. It's an intense word. He's telling them it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to stand against the darkness, against the crookedness, against the perversion that's all around us. This was the same call that Israel had in the Old Testament. They were to be this light to the nations around them. And it's interesting because when Paul talks about this idea of being faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, this is an exact quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32 where Moses is talking about the nation of Israel before his passing. And this is his description, not of the nations around them, but of what Israel had become. And so Paul is saying, I don't want to be like Moses. I don't want to get to the end of my ministry with you and find that you've not held out the gospel firmly, but instead you become the crooked and perverse generation. He says, you hold fast and you hold out these things so that I'll know that I haven't run in vain. That my investment in you brings me joy and not sorrow because I see that you remain true. That you're still advancing the kingdom and you haven't fallen back. He goes on to say, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Notice it's selfless. Paul says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice, we have to have a little understanding here real quick of the way the sacrificial system worked. The drink offering was something that was poured out actually on as an accompaniment to the main sacrifice. And Paul is saying, even if I am just the add-on, even if my service and my ministry is just something that's added on as a little extra to your sacrifice, you complete my joy. And I ask that you participate and partake in the joy of my ministry and the fruits that are there because you support me. That makes you partaker in what the Lord is doing through my life as well. It says, even if I can be just a little bit of a partaker in what you're doing, just encouraging you a little bit, just seeing you grow just a little bit, even that, even if it's just a drink offering, just an add-on, it says that brings me joy. It's selfless. He's not looking for all the glory himself. 
He just wants to contribute a little bit to seeing them continue to do what God has called them to do. But it's also compounding. It's also compounding. As the Philippian church encourages Paul, Paul can encourage the Philippian church. And as they continue to encourage each other and see each other grow and do more ministry, the more ministry is done, the more fruit there is, the more joy there is at the harvest. It doesn't matter who did the harvesting. It doesn't matter who did the planting. It doesn't matter who did the watering. It doesn't matter who did the weeding. The point of the matter is the work got done. And at the end of the day, when the bountiful harvest is brought in, we all get to be partakers in the joy. It's completely selfless. And it's compounding. And it was designed to be that way. And then Paul gives two more examples of what this humility looks like. And we'll close with these. It says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of a kindred spirit who would genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust that the Lord, that myself, also will be coming shortly. He gives us this example of Timothy as an example of humility. And there's two things that he shows us. One, notice that he says their welfare and the interest of Christ are one and the same. It's interesting as we look at that because he says he's sending Timothy because no one else will look after them and out, look out for their interest and their welfare like Timothy will. And then he says because you know Timothy. And he's genuinely concerned about the interest of Christ. See, if I'm genuinely concerned about the interest of Christ, I am genuinely concerned about your welfare and your ministry. Not my own. But he also goes on to say that Timothy has served him like a child serving his father. Think about how your children want to help and serve you. Even if they're really just getting in the way and getting underfoot and messing things up and making it harder and take longer, right? They genuinely want to do what? They just want to help. They just want to be there. They just want to do. They just want to see you happy. They just want to see you succeed at what it is that you're doing. And they're willing to do anything to help you do that. Even when you find little things to help you that are really no help at all, but it keeps them out of the way, right? Like, for instance, okay, well, while I'm tightening this up, why don't you go over there and take those nuts and make sure that they're all turned up, the right side up? Is there a right side up on a nut? Do they know that? But what are they doing? They're helping. They want to see you happy. They want to see the job done. They want to see you succeed in what it is that you're doing and you're trying to accomplish. And they want however you need them just to be a part of what it is that you're doing. And Timothy served that way for the Apostle Paul. It didn't matter what it was Paul needed him to do. It didn't matter if he got any glory for it at all. It didn't matter if there was a bonus on his paycheck. It didn't matter if he got to be the assistant vice chair to the what. It, none of that mattered to him. He was simply serving Paul as a child serves a father. And he was simply serving Paul as we are to serve each other. Because in serving each other, we're serving the father. 
It doesn't matter what it is. We just want to see the Father happy. We want to see him succeed. That's the humility of a child that Paul was talking about that he saw in Timothy. But then he gives another example. He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and a minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he, you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not, only, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. See, in Epaphroditus, we see something as well. There's this selfless concern. Epaphroditus came to Paul to serve Paul. And along the way, we don't know how he got sick, what he contracted, but Paul tells us it brought him close to the point of death. But Epaphroditus' only concern, even at this point, was completing his ministry to Paul, but also not worrying those who were home that had heard he was sick. His big concern was that in hearing that he was sick to the point of death and not knowing what had happened, not knowing if he was well, that it would be a discouragement to the church at home. And that was his number one concern. Whatever it is that I am doing in my service, I don't want to be a discouragement to the church at home. Humility is selfless concern. It's selfless concern. It's not worried about what's happening with me and what I'm getting. Am I going to get mine? And how's this going to work out for me in the end? And what's best for me right now? It's what's best for the kingdom. That's my only concern. We also see Paul's concern. Paul was enjoying being ministered to. Paul was suffering in a tough place himself. But Paul's concern was not keeping Epaphroditus there to minister to him, but sending him home so that Epaphroditus wouldn't be worried and that the church in Philippi wouldn't be worried about him. It didn't matter that Epaphroditus was easing Paul's situation and was a help and an encouragement to him. His concern was about Epaphroditus' concern and about the church in Philippi. Again, selfless concern. And because of that, we see this self-sacrifice. Epaphroditus carried on with his journey regardless of how sick he was. And Paul was willing to give up whatever benefit Epaphroditus brought him to make sure that the church in Philippi was continuing on and doing what God needed them to do. Nothing new that we haven't talked about already, but again, an example of just how extreme and how far they're willing to go. You say, well, that would be pretty selfish of the church in Philippi that they would want Epaphroditus back and not have him stay there and take care of Paul, who's a prisoner for the gospel. It wasn't the church who asked for him back, but it was Paul's concern for them. It was Paul's concern that they continue to do what he couldn't while he was in prison. It's Paul's concern for the kingdom's expansion and continuance. 
that he was willing to sacrifice even the one comfort that he had. And that was someone to minister to him while he was there in prison. So the question today is this. Where's your mind? Same question that we asked last week. But where is your mind? How is your humility? Is your greatest concern the kingdom of God? Have you reckoned that in your soul? Have you taken on that attitude that we talked about last week and again this week? That the only thing that matters is Christ living through us and doing His will through our lives. And as we reckon that, and as we realize that, how is that playing out in our attitude toward others? And not just within the body, but those that we come across every day. Are we realizing that our focus every day needs to be, why did God bring them to my life? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing today for them? How can I serve them today? How can I be a blessing to them, an encouragement to them, a help to them, an admonishment to them? What is it that I can do to see the kingdom of God expanded through their life and their ministry? And some of that is discipleship. Some of that is encouraging other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of that is a text or a phone call. Some of that is a visit. Some of that is menial task and hard labor. Some of that is stepping up and using your spiritual gifts where God is challenging you and calling you to use them, even if it takes you out of your comfort zone. Part of that is by coming and surrendering Him for the first time to begin with today. And taking that act of humility and and saying that you realize, you know what, you've known about Him, you've known Him, you've known what He's wanted to do, you know what He's about, you're sympathetic toward it, but you've never humbled yourself and let go of your pride and let go of your wants and your desires to the point where you've made Him Lord of your life. And today that's what you need to do. And begin this life of humility by humbling yourself ultimately before the one who gave himself completely for you. Some of you, there are areas in your life that you've not surrendered to him. You've not humbled yourself to the point where you're willing to let go anything. There's that one thing that you're grasping, that one thing you're clutching and holding on to that you deserve, that identifies who you are today you're just realizing maybe he's not even asking you to let it go but you're realizing you're holding it too tightly and today is the day when you say you know what God if you were to ask me to let it go I will it's not mine it's yours and you need to surrender and humble yourself in that area of life whatever the case may be today's the day you need to do business with God I'm going to pray and if you need to talk or you need to deal with one of these things you come Just do business with God. You don't have to tell me what it is. You don't even have to talk to me about it. But if you need to talk, you need to ask, certainly, by all means, come. Father, we.